welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and today we're going to be talking about the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to be talking about the 2021 Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. And joining me for this conversation is the Executive Director of Operations for G3 Ministries, Virgil Walker. Welcome to the conversation. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Excited for our conversation. Absolutely. So we've just been to the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville, where some nearly 16,000 were pre-registered. I don't know how many exactly at the high point showed up in the room, but over 15,000 certainly were there in the room. It was an, it was a massive sight to behold. Um, it was standing room only in the in the main room, obviously for most of the business sessions that occurred. And so it was it was. Uh, something to behold. Uh, If you've been to a Southern Baptist convention in recent years, you will note that this was almost double the normal size. So, you know, typically messengers are coming in from various places around the nation into different cities, depending on where the actual annual meeting is held. And so it's typically seven to 8,000 at, you know, the most. And here we were tipping 16,000. And so this was this was something else. I mean, what were your thoughts as you walked around the room and, and had conversations with people? It w- it was well, first of all, just the, the site to behold the convention center itself and where it was held, the beauty of that, the the, the awe of that, to the point you made, the numbers of, of people. Uh, I was there at the, the last convention in 2019. And so I kind of remember the size and scope of that and to see the massive uh, you know, the numbers of people, the um, the folks that were there from all over the country. It was absolutely breathtaking, to be honest. Yeah. And I mean, as we walked around, we certainly saw new faces. We saw many of, uh, of old faces, friends that typically show up each year at the convention. And this was, I, I say this was a, a little bit of a, a, an abnormal year for me personally. Typically, the SBC is something that's on our radar screen every year. So we take a group of messengers from our church, and my family uh, typically goes with me. We have our children involved in various activities around the convention. Uh, and during the convention, I'm uh, usually attending you know, pastors' meetings, or I'm there to go to various conference gatherings, and then to be a part of the actual business of the convention itself. And so this year we did something a bit different. We took our messengers and we convoyed, leaving at six o'clock in the morning on Tuesday, and then arriving in the early hours of that first business session morning. And we spent the entire day until the very evening, and then we got in about two o'clock in the morning on Wednesday. So we drove back. So it was a one-day event for us, which was a little bit different for me. I'm usually there for the whole thing, and I'm, I'm usually there for multiple days. So it was different. Um, as you walked around, Virgil, and as you had conversations with pastors, what were you hearing as as they were talking to you? Yeah, you know, a lot of, lot of conversations. It was obvious that two things were taking place. One, that there were a lot of folks who were there at this, at this convention for the very first time. So there were a lot of first timers who were there who had maybe learned about maybe some of the issues that were going to be discussed and talked about, whether it was egalitarianism, issues of abortion, um, issues around CRT, and also uh, the election of a, of a brand new uh, SBC convention president. So all of those things were, 
were a buzz. You could you could feel kind of a a tenseness and an, and an, what I would say is an intentionality about being there, being purposed, being focused, everyone knowing where they needed to be to be in the room at particular times when specific issues were going to be discussed. So this was, I think you, I think you said it well, I think in previous years, you kind of come, there's this atmosphere of kind of a family reunion type of an experience uh, because of, you know, maybe smaller numbers, but at the same time, you're seeing a lot, a lot of folks who you don't normally see. Uh, this year, it was really a very focused, uh, very directed kind of atmosphere. While people did meet and greet one another uh, and see old old friends, uh, it, those conversations were much much brief. You know, much more brief uh, than they would have been in the past, as people really wanted to stay focused on getting in and making their 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 points uh, known in the in the in the uh, convention. Yeah, so we'll come back to that as far as the reason for the groundswell of numbers. But let's go back and let's just sort of talk about the SBC. So I've been a part of the Southern Baptist Convention my entire life. So from the very first time that I joined the church, when I was seven years of age, it was a Southern Baptist church. I have been a part of three churches in my lifetime as members or as a member, and I have actually pastored all three of those churches, which is a conversation for a different day, obviously, if you think about it. But um, I'm greatly indebted to this convention of churches. I have graduated from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the mother seminary of the SBC, twice. And as I've been a pastor from the very beginning, when I was called to pastor, when I was um, a seminary student at Southern Seminary, I made a commitment early on. In fact, I made this commitment, Virgil, when I was a student of Russell Moore's. And I was sitting in a class and we were talking about the Southern Baptist Convention. And I had never been to an SBC before. And he made a statement that resonated with me and it convinced me to rethink, you know, how I looked at the SBC. And if I'm pastoring an SBC church and if we're sending money to the SBC, to fund entities and mission endeavors that I should probably go to an SBC. So I started going um, early on and I've been attending the SBC every single year. It's just a part of, I think, being a good steward of, of the SBC. And so as I think about the Southern Baptist Convention, some 48,000 churches or so making up some 14 million members uh, there's a, an enormous amount of money that flows into this convention. I, I think the report this year was that Southern Baptist, even through a pandemic, gave almost $50 million to the CP. I mean, that's astounding. And you think about theological education, church planting and missions, churches cooperating together. I mean, if you think about the ability to impact the world with a group of churches, I mean, you would look at the SBC and say, man, we have, we have so much opportunities before us, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, like you, I, I think the influence for me regarding the SBC um, is, is not nowhere near as long as yours. Uh, I've been in, in the SBC for about the last six years. Uh, and as a result of my time as a, as a pastor uh, at, a, at a SBC in Omaha, Nebraska, um, I, I really cut my teeth, so to speak, my, my theological chops within that church. Um, it was really important to me as a, as a seminary student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I was actually studying a class 
uh, called Baptist History. Uh, as you're pursuing your MDiv in that pr- part of the process, you do church history, but you also take a class called Baptist History. And it was during that time that I really thought it was important for me to be at an SBC convention. I'd read about the conservative resurgence. I'd read about all the all the different historical things that have taken place within the SBC. So I really thought it was important for me to to be there in person. So 2019 was actually my first you know, convention uh, that, that I attended. So uh, it was important to me to get back, especially given the nature of what took place during that convention to, to this one to see how things unfolded. So definitely grateful. I think all the things you mentioned are things that all of us uh, who, are, who have been and are a part of the SBC can absolutely be proud of with regard to what the, the, the scope, the impact uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, and even at that convention in Birmingham, you, you and I ran into one another in the hallway, right? So absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I look I look upon that one with 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 uh, with great favor, man. That was a <laughs> that was a prime that was a prime opportunity, man, in God's providence uh, that that He saw that you and I ran into each other, knew one another, knew of one another, but it was a, a wonderful opportunity to be reconnected and. Uh, of course, that was that was before conversations about about the role that I'm currently in even had had begun. But it was just another opportunity to connect and uh, you know recognize the, the value of, of of relationship through something as wonderful as the as the, as the Southern Baptist Convention. So yeah, I mean you know as I look back at the SBC and the the time I've spent at the annual meeting, it's always profitable. We have so many good, rich conversations. Friendships are mm-hmm. strengthened and opportunities to uh, engage in overlap of ministry. I mean, that happens. Anytime you go to a conference or a convention gathering like that, those are opportunities that we should certainly uh, thank the Lord for. Um, but as we as we think about the SBC, let's talk about the groundswell. Why were there so many messengers in Nashville this year? I mean, why is it that we have yeah. so many um, messengers showing up in Nashville for this convention. And, and I think the reason would be uh, probably a couple of reasons. I think, uh, number one, it's not just that we had a COVID year and we had to miss this last year uh, in, in 2020, but I think that I think the reason was based on what actually did happen at 2019 uh, in Birmingham. So you had the adoption of the infamous Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality, and then the the you know, ongoing conversation and debate that that erupted from that and that lasted all throughout the, the the last half of 2019 and then the full year of 2020 really set the stage for the emotional response of CRT. And uh-huh. obviously, uh, in the meantime, you have the tragedy with uh, George Floyd that intensified that conversation, Black Lives Matter, beating the drum of CRT. And then, of course, now with the political election that uh, intensified that even more. And now we have soccer moms and concerned parents standing at school board meetings demanding that CRTI not be taught to their students at the local school level. And so here we have messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention who are seated in their living rooms who were, you know, a year or so ago, not having conversations about critical race theory, certainly in their living rooms, are now hearing, you know, cultural commentators and 
and reporters and people on the evening news talking about critical race theory. And so this intensifies this, this conversation within the life of the Southern Baptist Convention. So then people start stating, well, we need to actually go to the convention and we need to, we need to have this conversation together. So that's one reason. And then another reason is because this was a presidential election year for the SBC. And so there were four men who were uh, stated that were going to be nominated for this convention and and at this convention for the SBC. And those four men were Albert Moeller, Mike Stone, Ed Litton, and Randy Adams. And so then, of course, you start hearing about these individuals. And so that right alongside the issue of critical race theory intensified the debate and resulted, I think, in what we could see as a massive groundswell of messengers coming to this convention ready to cast their ballots. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, it was a it was definitely a flashpoint. I mean, you had the the, the COVID experience that that really shut things down for 2020. And, and again, right at, at 2021, you had Ahmaud Arbery in February. Uh, you had Breonna Taylor in March. Uh, you had George Floyd, like you said, in May. Uh, and then you ha- and then you had the fruit of of those who were driven by the ideological underpinnings of CRT exploding in the streets. So that's what people got to watch on their television screens, all the while trying to determine what is CRT, uh, experiencing the fruit thereof. And, and and I think you made the point wonderfully. Soccer moms now uh, are in the are in the courts, or uh, are, are at are at state legislatures rather. And they're arguing these issues. Uh, they understand more than ever before what's going on and, 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 and its impact. And they definitely don't want to see their children impacted by it. So, again, with the largest um, body of, of you know, evangelicals that, uh, that we know of in the Southern Baptist Convention, folks want to, ha- they, they want to have their voice heard. And this was the flashpoint opportunity for them to do so through the election of a, of a brand new president of the SBC. And so again, those two things I think were were really, really important to seeing the, the numbers of people that actually came to this convention. What do you think about complementarianism? What did that play into this groundswell as well? Because if you remember back to 2018, going into the Dallas SBC meeting, there was a massive drumbeat and uh, you know a central conversation that was being had related to complementarianism. People were asking the question: Should Beth Moore be elected as the president, or or at least a woman for that matter, be elected as president for the SBC? And then that conversation continued to be furthered within the life of the SBC about women and the roles of women and the functionality of women. And then you have the debate about you know the both the office and the functionality of the office as it pertains to the Baptist faith and message of the SBC and so with that alongside CRTI and of course the presidential race do you think that that also played into this i i do in this way in that i think the proponents of critical race theory uh, have a leaning because of the because of the view that they have the the other tool that they have and you mentioned in in, in the i of the CRT, the intersectionality aspect, the idea that that you your your voice is important on the basis of your victimhood status, and it, as they see it, as they view the world, victims come in all shapes, sizes, forms, and colors. One of those victims would definitely be women, uh, and as a result, they would want to see their voice amplified. So I think it's part and parcel 
of of C of those who advocate for CRT. But it is important, I think, in the way that you did. I think it is important to parse that out a bit to say that's another facet of what's happening because we can get blinded by the idea that that all that everything related to CRT is simply focused on issues of race and ethnicity. I put race in air quotes. You and I both agree with that. It's one human race, multiple ethnicities, but everything could be put under the umbrella of of race and ignored if we're not careful. But but all of those issues uh, that, that underlie it, issues of ethnicity, uh, issues of, of um, gender uh, and the like are important facets of, of understanding CRT. And that was absolutely a component as well. So I've received lots of questions from people within the G3 community who are asking questions about, okay, now what next? Or you know, what were your concerns as you looked at the, the you know, the, the Southern Baptist Convention's meeting in Nashville? So obviously we want to have that conversation today. We want to talk a little bit about what the SBC really did this year. In other words, we want to talk about the decisions that were made. We want to talk about um, the, the, the debate that happened from the floor on various different resolutions and then we want to be really honest, as far as this conversation is concerned, about some genuine concerns moving forward as far as the Southern Baptist Convention and affiliation with the Southern Baptist Convention. So I think in order to do that, we need to start with the election of the president. And so when we got to the business session for election there uh, in the afternoon after lunch on Tuesday, we were brought to order and we were given the opportunity to hear the nominations for the presidency. After all the, uh, all the nominations were, were put before the convention, we were then asked to submit a vote. And in order to do that, we had a, a book of ballots that were given to us when we registered and checked in. And then we went through that process. And so uh, I think it was probably an hour and a half or a couple of hours later, they came back to us with the results of that. Now keep in mind that's somewhere 15,000 or so um, votes had to be counted and then the results had to be brought back to the convention. Now, the 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 interesting thing with the results for the first ballot was that um, Mike Stone received the most votes out of the four candidates in the, on the first ballot and Albert Moeller was third. Now, that was a that, that, that was shocking to some people because going into this election, many people thought that Al Mohler was, was the leading candidate, certainly the most recognizable name out of the four. And he received the third spot. So it was Mike Stone, and then it was Ed Litton who was second, Al Mohler third, and then, of course, Adams was fourth. Now, at that point, what has to happen, because no one got 50% or more of all of the votes, you have to go into a runoff. And so the two people that were going to be voted upon was Mike Stone and um, Ed Litton. Now, at that moment, something of, of critical importance happened. If you're looking at Twitter at that point, you have the two hashtags, which was hashtag SBC21 and and then hashtag SBC 2021 were both being utilized. And you saw elites within the SBC world, namely one of those, Danny Aiken, who's the president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, who goes to Twitter and immediately, frantically, passionately tweeting that we should vote for Ed Litton. 
Yeah, I, I, want, I want to interject something in here, Josh, because I had the benefit of, uh, of being next to you in this role that, that I have here at G3 as, as Executive Director of Operations. And, and I, I, I recognized, uh, I think the, let me, say, let me say it this way, I think the average person who would have maybe seen that tweet may not have thought anything of that. Uh, may have simply saw that and kind of kind of w- walked by it and and ignored it or or, or maybe gave it a thumbs up or a positive th- thought. I had the benefit of sitting next to you for you to explain to me a little bit about the proper protocol that's in place. Uh, what's normative for SBC uh, seminary presidents to do? Would would you kind of tee that up a little bit? Kind of walk us through because I, I had the benefit of, of hearing that. I don't know that our audience recognizes that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's customary for when, you know, a president is elected, uh, an SBC president is elected, that you will see the presidents of these seminaries who are going to be working right alongside this individual over the course of typically a couple of years. I mean, he's not given two years, you know, automatically, he's going to have to be reelected that second term, but he is offered that second term. And so for up to two years, these SBC seminary presidents are going to need to work with this individual. So you will often see them tweet out something uh, that, that indicates that they're, you know, congratulating this individual on being elected as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and then, you know, offering up, you know, just, you know, words of congratulations, but also just saying, we're going to be praying for you as we work together. And hopefully we'll come together as a convention and we'll go forward, that sort of thing. Um not too many times do you see a president of a seminary engaging in the hashtag politics, pressing for individuals to be elected, but this was happening frantically by Danny Aiken. Now, I will say to Danny's defense, yeah. um, I've been a part of you know this thing for a long time, so I've watched this you know social media world for a long time during the convention. He has. This was not his first rodeo as far as um, engaging in the world of politics and tweeting out things like that. I've gone to Baptist 21 lunches and sat in there and listened to them talk about the importance of being in the room at certain times. And then, of course, using the hashtags and engaging in those conversations. So Danny's done this before, but um, this year was... was uh, probably a step up in intensity nonetheless. And he was, he was one of the only ones. It provides a signal, doesn't it? For, for where, for where someone is standing with regard to particular issues. It it provides a massive signal. You're right about that, but he's, I didn't really survey all of the seminary presidents to see who was and who wasn't tweeting at that time, but his name was, was consistently coming to the forefront because you see, he didn't just tweet one time. Uh, you know, I think we should vote for Ed Litton. He's tweeting and retweeting others who are putting that same word out to the convention. So there was a passionate push and it worked. And so Ed Litton narrowly defeated Mike Stone just by a few hundred votes. And so if you look at the number of votes cast, in fact, a, a good number of messengers actually left the room, which is probably a rookie mistake, perhaps, um, after that first vote. And so then the second vote, the runoff, was less messengers voting. Now, that number alone could have swayed the results, 
could have swayed the results of that runoff election. But nevertheless, Ed Litton was elected as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And as we think about that, we need to talk about what this means. Now, and, and again, I want to be very clear, this is not an ad hominem attack against the man personally, but I have massive concerns with the election of Ed Litton as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I want to talk about those in two categories. First, the issue of complementarianism and the roles and responsibilities of women in the life of the church. And then I want to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, let's just talk about complementarianism. Coming into this convention, Virgil, it was known where these men stood on the big issues. It had already been debate, uh, debated uh, as far as the, the, the cultural debate is concerned. Uh, these conversations had been, had been had on many different levels. Uh, articles had been written. I mean, so the issues were, were laid out right before the convention, coming into this convention. And so we knew who Ed Litton was, and we knew where he stood and where he does presently stand on the issues of complementarianism. And so he has preached in recent days with his wife, co-preached sermons, which is readily available for you there to see uh, online. You, you can find it probably by going to his website and looking at their sermon archives. So when you have a man who is actually preaching it, by the way, I would just argue this is actually not the true definition of preaching. Um, it, it looked more like a talk show or a conversational coffee shop sort of setting at a round table with he and his wife on the platform, and then he covers point one, and then she covers point two, and that's not really preaching. Let's just be honest. But nevertheless, for the sake of this conversation, he co-preached a sermon with his wife. Now, I'm very concerned about that. But I'm not only concerned about the fact that he does this, I'm concerned about the fact that he does this as he now leads the Southern Baptist Convention. Like He's putting forth an example to 48,000 churches that make up the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's putting an example before um, young pastors, and, and we need to take that seriously. But not only that, Virgil, back to the previous issue with Dr. Aiken. Danny Aiken is the president of a seminary who trains pastors, and he is promoting this man to lead this convention of churches. I find this is very troubling and a concerning issue that we need to take seriously. So what are your thoughts on that? Just kind of, just kind of initially, uh, when you look at the numbers of evangelicals who are already open to the idea of women preaching, um, and, and again, the issue is not in the giftedness of women. The issue is not in the, the, the idea that we think of women as less than. The, the issue is, do we take the Bible to mean what it says by what it says? Uh, and, and do we believe that the church should function in the manner in which God designed and ordered it to function? And so that at the end of the day is the ultimate issue. Uh, and here we have someone who said, you know what, I, I want to look at what culture dictates. I want to look at what I feel comfortable with. I want to look at uh, what the what, what ideas maybe other churches uh, have embraced and move in that direction rather than what we've done historically, which is historically speaking, especially back after the conservative resurgence, we, we said we believed in biblical inerrancy and biblical sufficiency, biblical authority, biblical sufficiency. 
what we're watching being demonstrated on the platform in these churches, uh, especially uh, with specificity to to Ed uh, Litton and, and his church at Redemption Church there in, in Alabama, that's not the case. Uh, we're watching him demonstrate for the largest evangelical organization in the country, the largest denomination, Southern Baptist, that, that this is the manner in which things should be done. And we've put that person in the most important office uh, in the convention. Absolutely. And this is not just your opinion, and this is not just my opinion that we're talking about here. We're talking about the Bible. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, uh, Paul lays out a foundational case for this issue. In fact, rooting it in creation, in the creation order, that women should not be uh, exercising authority, teaching or exercising authority over men. And so when you have a gathered church assembly, it doesn't matter if his wife is seated right next to him and she then preaches point number two in his sermon, um, she is she is acting in an authoritative manner. Anytime you open the Bible and say, thus says the Lord God, and you're calling people to obey God or you're calling people to repent and to submit themselves to God, that is acting in contradiction to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So this is a massive problem that we should take seriously, but I think it's indicative, as you said in the opening statements of this conversation, Virgil, that this is indicative of the stream of messengers and churches that make up the Southern Baptist Convention. So this is not just a CRT issue. This is a CRT, intersectionality, complementarian debate that all is interwoven together, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that you did well, uh, Josh, uh, when, when we talked about this issue in particular is because I, I can hear the detractors as, as you lay this out in my mind, I can hear the detractors saying, yeah, Josh, I mean, I, it sounds right, but you know, her husband was there. There was some kind of a covering there. There was that kind of a thing. I, and, and I think when, when you and I discussed this, you'd really set up the, the message and the signal that it sends and, and, and why that's important. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, when you see this type of thing happening, what you're doing is you're, um, you're, you're putting people in a place of authority. And anytime you place someone in a place of authority within the life of a worship service, what you're saying is that this individual is leading us in worship right? Yes. So it doesn't matter if you're baptizing someone or if you're engaging in the, the, the work of, of serving the Lord's table. Um, that's, that's seen as leading us in worship. And so there are places where we need to say, okay, uh, gifted women need to be serving in various different ways to make the church strong and to use their giftedness. But when you place women in certain places within the life of the church, and then you offer them up to, to leading the congregation in that way of worship, that's, that's communicating something very clearly to the church. And so we need to be cautious about that. We need to think about, in fact, I would urge us all to think about the entire worship service from the opening call to worship to the benediction. I mean, you look at everything and you ask the question, what is it that we're communicating as, as we do this, right? And so um, in this case, with Ed Litton having his wife co-preach with him, number one, that's not preaching. Number two, that's in violation to the Word of God. And as you made a statement earlier, I mean, I would go on record as stating I fully agree with this. This does not mean that we are suggesting that women are less gifted, that they're not as articulate as us, that they don't possess the theological acumen to 
to ascend a pulpit and to speak, um, that's not at all what we're communicating. We're not we're, we're not communicating that they're of lesser value and dignity than men. I mean, look, we believe that men and women are created equal, and that they both have uh, been created in the image and likeness of God. But there are roles and responsibilities that we must take seriously, and we're not the ones. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention isn't able to alter those boundaries. Those boundaries are put in motion by God Himself and are and are laid out specifically in the Word of God, which is sufficient and authoritative. So complementarianism is an issue. And again, I think that Ed Litton is something less than complementarian. He would call himself a conservative who's not angry about it, whatever that means. Look, I'm not angry about it either. Uh, but but the fact is, we need to be passionately standing upon the Word of God without compromise, without apology. Like, we should not be blushing for what the Bible actually says, right? So, complementarianism is an issue. You continuously have people, just like the old days, back in what we would call the dark ages of the SBC, who were saying, well, we're conservative, we believe in inerrancy, but they define it differently, Okay. And so we're having that same problem repeated today as it pertains to complementarianism. They'll say, oh yeah, we're an inerrantist. We believe in complementarianism. I'm a complementarian, but they're using different dictionaries to define these terms. And this is critically important. This is an old tactic of the liberals from the days gone by in the SBC predating the conservative resurgence. Yeah. It's it's similar to the, though, Josh, to uh, any any group or organization that has a tendency to to either lean whether you call it leftism, whether you call it progressivism, uh, whether you go so far as to, to to look at even the cults, and I'm I'm not saying that Ed Linton's a part of a cult. What I'm saying is every every aberrant organization that wants to ape the 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 orthodox position does so by co-opting the language. Uh, they 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 take the language and, for example, I think it could be easily seen with regard to to Mormonism. We say Jesus, they say Jesus. They mean something totally different when they say Jesus, right? Uh, you you look at any other issue like that. Uh, the the um, movements like like the pro life pro choice movement, right? The, the pro choice is an is an idea about about choosing. What are they choosing? Well, they they don't want to be called the pro death movement. Right, they want to be called a pro-choice movement. Language isn't is important uh, in these instances, and that's why it's it's important. I know we'll talk about this a little bit later on. It's why it's important to be very very specific in language, and it's critically important to define terminology when you use language, so that people know what you mean by what you say. Yeah, that's critically important, uh, and that's a great a great way to segue into this next this next issue of great concern, and this is. This is the issue of the Trinity. So now we've elected Ed Litton as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But if you go to Redemption Church's website in Alabama, uh, if you where he pastors, if you go to their website and you just look at their doctrinal statement, what we believe, interestingly enough, if you go to that very doctrinal statement, it's something different today, just a few days later than it was just a few days ago, even preceding the SBC, the article of God, what we believe. Now, this is what it stated just a few days ago. It stated this, quote, God is the creator and ruler of the universe. 
He has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three are co-equal parts of one God, end quote. Now, if you go to that website today, you're going to see this statement. It says, quote, God is one, the creator and ruler of the universe. He has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, end quote. Interestingly enough, this has been changed, and so it now reflects something different. Now, I think that this is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, we need to just admit that it's been changed, all right? And then number two, it's been changed during a time, to the best of my knowledge, where they haven't held a congregational meeting with their church, led by the pastors of the church, to alter the doctrinal statement of the church. So has this been done, would be a good question, has this been done just by a mere scrubbing of the, of the website? And yet the doctrinal statement of the church is still reflecting something different. Now, what's the beef, you say? Well, the beef is this. Um, the, the original statement that included a sentence after the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit stated, quote, these three are co-equal parts of one God. Now, we don't have time to, to get into a, a full-on Trinitarian conversation, but what we can be clear about is that that statement is certainly not in line with historic orthodoxy, okay? Uh, co-equal parts of one God. The, the three persons of the Godhead are not parts of the Trinity, Okay, and so we need to be clear that this is certainly out of bounds theologically. Now, the reason that this caught my attention, as you might remember, is because just back in April, um, I tweeted out that Jesus was not a victim, but that he was actually crushed on the cross under the wrath of the Father, and that this was the predestined plan of God. Now, again, uh, the mob came after me on that very statement. But interestingly enough, there was one individual, Oren Martin, who actually teaches at Boyce College, which is connected to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, quote, uh, quote tweeted that, and then took issue with my statement and said, this is why he teaches theology, because he wants to teach something different than the sloppiness of this theological statement. I'm, not, I'm just paraphrasing here. Um, but immediately you had a debate that, that resulted, and people started talking about whether or not what I said was, was an orthodox statement or was it unorthodox. Um, church history is actually on my side on this issue. Um, you have Puritans and theologians and historic confessions of faith that all use that language of the Father's wrath. I mean, you have the Belgic Confession of 1561 in Article 21 that says, quote, the atonement, uh, on the atonement says, quote, we believe that Jesus Christ presented himself in our name before his Father to appease his Father's wrath with full satisfaction by offering himself, end quote. You have individuals like John Flavel who said the following, quote, he, Christ, suffered in his soul as well as in his body. And the sufferings of his soul were the very soul of his sufferings. It was the Father's wrath that lay so heavy on him, end quote. You have individuals like Thomas Brooks who said the following, Christ prayed for souls. He sweat for souls. 
He wept for souls. He bled for souls. He hung on the cross for souls. He trade the winepress of his father's wrath for souls, end quote. So I don't have to go on and on. I could go to Calvin. I could go to to multiple quotes uh, from Watson and others. But needless to say, historic confessions and theologians would side with me on this debate. And uh, I, again, I would point you to James White's dividing line. He devoted the majority of an entire dividing line to smooth out this issue and to talk about this issue. But the reason that I bring this up is because you have a you have a professor who's paid by the Southern Baptist Convention who takes a shot at a Southern Baptist pastor and calls me out of bounds for something that I'm certainly not out of bounds for, but yet we're going to get in line with the elites, Danny Aiken and others, and we're going to promote an individual named Ed Litton who has on his website something that is sloppy theologically when it talks about and describes the three persons of the of the Godhead as being co-equal parts of one God. Now, this is this is a tragic thing. I think that we underestimate how big of a deal this really is when we think about the issue of the president of the Southern Baptist Convention having something like that on his statement of belief. So what are your thoughts on that, Virgil? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that that we could add to that, and 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 that is this, and and I want to just drill down to what I believe is the is the primary issue for 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 maybe the guys in the cheap sheet, cheap seat, so to speak, and and that is what's what's really taking place that would cause one for that statement to be there, and then for it to be removed without a process in place. Uh, so the question then becomes, who removed it? Uh, how did they go about deciding whether or not it was going to be removed? And again, it, the the idea of, of Ed Litton's candidacy and and position is the idea that hey, we're if you if you read the headlines of the of the New York Times and of other articles, hey, this this moderate movement won back the SBC that the, that the quote unquote good old boys are are gone. The those who are who have held ground are are, are now out of power and they're upset about it. So so the question then becomes, uh, if this has been something that's been scrubbed rather than a proper process taking place. Have we just have we just done the same thing? Have we just switched hands, so to speak? Are the guys in the back room still making decisions so that their so that their their favorite candidate can be put forth in a in a positive light? I, I again the goal of of the question ask is it's not to tar and feather someone. It's to really drill down to what is the process, what is actually taking place. And is what we see really what we see? Is there true transparency throughout? Or is this something other than what we would like to hope that it actually is? Yeah, that's a that's a great point that you make there. So full transparency would be this. If you go to the Wayback Machine, you can look to June the 16th. So this is just, what, a couple of days ago. And you can see that that statement was still there as late as June 16th. So that means that there has not been a called meeting within the church. There's been no discussion. There's been no debate. There's been no explanation. It's just simply a a sentence taken from an article within their statement of beliefs that's just poofed. It's just disappeared. It's just erased. And so I think that that needs to be something that, that is asked you know, and I, I think that he deserves to explain publicly to the Southern Baptist Convention and as well his church 
as to the rationale behind doing something like that. If he's going to represent the Southern Baptist Convention, and if he's going to be elected to lead in that specific role, then I think we need to know why it is that that sentence disappeared this week. And so doctrine matters, theology matters, and we must be very clear on the issues of the day. And so complementarianism and, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity, this is a massive concern. So now we need to ask this question, Virgil. Why is it, why was there such a massive push for Lytton over Stone by the elites, by the machine of the Southern Baptist Convention? The elites seem to be terrified of Mike Stone and the conservatives who would have made necessary changes within the Southern Baptist Convention. And so their actions sort of uh, showed their cards, so to speak, that they were concerned about some of the changes that were forthright and open and transparent that we were intending to make in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. One of the things I, I hear in what, you, what you're saying is, and I'm, and I'm already thinking about, about the Th- th- those detractors, right? Those folks who are saying, "Josh, I think you're making too much. You're making a mountain out of a out of a molehill." Th- the reality is, I think you're voicing uh, the the feeling of a large majority of the folks who were a part of that convention. They they really felt like when you looked at parliamentary procedure and how it was used and abused. When you look at how mics were shut down, things that took place that were that were evident to those of us who are on the floor, but not so evident to someone who's watching this from afar. That those kinds of things come into into greater clarity when you're in the room. It's stuff that you wouldn't necessarily see, and you end up hearing reported reported about uh, from from news sources that don't hold our our particular view. Yeah, in fact, the New York Times would call us ultra conservative. In fact, that's the new title that we're we're given. This wasn't the only concern that we left the convention with. Um, another concern would have been some of the issues surrounding critical race theory and some of the resolutions. And so, first off, um, on Tuesday, uh, you had uh, the executive committee report, and when they offered up their report, they also discussed budget, and there was an amendment that was offered to the cooperative program allocation budget by our friend Tom Askell. So he goes to a microphone, he offers up an amendment to the budget, and the the amendment actually stated the following. It stated, quote, that he wanted to amend the budget to, quote, prohibit any funds being allocated to any institution, agency, or entity that in any way supports, promotes, or advocates any tenets of critical theory, critical race theory, or intersectionality, end quote. Immediately, he received a second. You could hear numerous uh, applause and, and seconds that were offered up. And so J.D. Greer, who is the, the, was the current president um, of the Southern Baptist Convention, asked for a moment to consult with the parliamentarian and the lawyers on stage behind him, and then he returned to the microphone with the following answer. Now, I think it would be good for us to just offer up the audio so that you can hear what J.D. Greer stated as he gives his answer to this possible amendment that was being brought to the floor by Tom Askell. He stated the following. If you'll come back to order. So let me make clear, um, after consulting with the parliamentarians and lawyers, I am no advocate of CRT, but after discussing this with them, I'm going to rule that amendment out of order for the following reasons. 
First, it violates the principles of our Southern Baptist system, the trustee system, namely, which has been the cornerstone of our policy for as long as any of us can remember. We have a system that was designed to work in a certain way, um, and that means if we want to see a certain thing changed, then we persuade Southern Baptists and elect a president that appoints trustees that holds these uh, entities accountable. Um, also, um, after discussing this with the parliamentarians and lawyers, it is their unanimous opinion that it would be impossible to administer this. The amendment does not specify, for example, who determines if they are out of order, what tenants of CRT we are talking about, and who arbitrates, which means that it is not giving it to anyone who actually can do anything with it. So for that reason, um, with their counsel, I'm going to rule that out of order. Um, messengers are certainly free to appeal that ruling if, if they want to, but that is the ruling as it stands. All right. Now, as you hear that audio, we must ask the question, why? Why would he say that? Why would J.D. Greer make a statement uh, as he was counseled by the parliamentarian and the lawyers to reject that type of language that would prevent the entities and institutions of the SBC from any sort of promotion or uh, teaching of critical theory, critical race theory, and intersectionality. Why reject that as a friendly amendment? So as we think about that question, I think it would it would just be very clear. If you actually draw a line in the sand and state that we as the Southern Baptist Convention are not going to fund any entity or institution that teaches critical theory or critical race theory or intersectionality, if you name it as such, then it has an immediate impact upon schools. That would be Southern Baptist colleges or seminaries that have professors who are advocating or promoting at any level CRTI. And so there would have been an immediate response an impact on on these entities. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Furthermore, I think it's it's it it's serves it serves the the folks who are in leadership, JD Greer and others, well to have an an, an ambiguous approach to CRTI. Um, when you begin to label these things and name these things outright, uh, it to the point you just made, it has a direct and specific specific impact. Uh, it's easier not to do that, to have vague language, uh, to talk about theories and ideologies rather than naming critical race theory, rather than naming intersectionality, uh, because what it does is it provides ambiguous language, provides a broad tent. Uh, and what it does is it, it really allows the camel's nose, so to speak, to get underneath the tent. And uh, what you begin to see is the impact of that long term rather than dealing with and addressing with the issue. Well, at that point, so J.D. Greer was stating that we don't have the ability, it would be impossible to to carry out such an order because we already have a system that works its way out to protect those individual institutions, like you mentioned, uh, Southern Seminary with the abstractive principles and uh, professors that were brought in and put on notice because they had signed the abstract that they would teach uh, in conjunction with and not contrary to. And so that's how they were able to fire those employees uh, and clean up Southern Seminary was because of that very issue. So J.D. Greer would say, uh, if he were in this conversation, he would say, see, that's what I was meaning. 
that, that we have a system, we have a way that we can protect this convention and we can't do it by just drawing a line in the sand at a national level. Uh, we need to let those institutions and those entities be governed by their own systems and their own documents. And that's worked for all of these years and it'll continue to work in the days to come. The problem is, is that we could actually do what Tom was, was asking. Because we have a system in place that would allow us to govern churches that actually promote or become inclusive with issues related to homosexuality. And if they do that, then we have a means by which we can dismiss those churches and disfellowship those churches. And so could we not do the same thing when it comes to the issues related to institutions, schools or entities, seminaries for that matter, that are actually advocating and teaching critical race theory and intersectionality? And the answer to that is yes. When J.D. Greer says uh, we would have to determine, you know, uh, what actual tenet of critical race theory are we talking about? How are we to determine what tenet we're discussing or evaluating? Again, that's just political language because, you know, when it comes to homosexuality, we don't have to worry about that when it comes to issues related to, okay, are we talking about transgenderism? Are we talking about those who claim to be a part of the Christian homosexual community? Uh, Are we talking about lesbianism? What are we talking about here? No, we just know that if it falls under the umbrella of homosexuality, the LGBTQA plus category, that it's out of bounds. And so we could do the very same thing when it comes to issues related to critical theory and critical race theory. The issue is they know that it would have an immediate impact on some institutions that moment when we voted upon that. Speaking of that ambiguity, let's talk a little bit about Resolution 2. So Resolution 2 was a, a resolution that was offered up to the convention for consideration, and the title of it was On the Sufficiency of Scripture for Race and Racial Reconciliation. And when you look at that specific um, that specific resolution, if you go to the third resolved, you will see the following language. It says, it says this, it says, resolved that we reject any theory or worldview that finds the ultimate identity of human beings in ethnicity or any other group dynamic, end quote. Now, at that moment, a messenger sought to provide an amendment that actually names CRT, and they rejected that amendment as a friendly amendment. Instead, they stated, they doubled down, they stated that they were happy with their language because their language uses, quote unquote, any theory or worldview, which allows CRT really in many ways to continue to be perpetuated in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, they, of course, didn't add that last statement. That was my statement. I think that when they when they strike down this amendment as friendly, when they say, well, we want to just cling to our language. Our language is sufficient. Any theory or worldview. Now, the question must be asked, why is it? Why is it that the, that the resolutions committee was unwilling to receive that as a friendly amendment to actually name critical race theory? Again, there was other additional conversation that came from the floor uh, in support of this gentleman's amendment, but it was continuously pushed back and they rejected it. Now, why is it? Why is it again? We need to ask the question, why? Why must we be ambiguous on issues related to critical race theory? Why can't we just say the name? 
Why can't we just call it what it is? I mean, again, we have these soccer moms, we have concerned parents, we have we have cultural commentators, we have politicians, we have all sorts of figures who are having this discussion. They're actually using the name critical race theory. So now, Virgil, why do you think that there's a need to be ambiguous on the the actual name of critical race theory and and and, and avoiding calling it what it actually is? It, go, it goes back to what we've been discussing about language. One of the one of the things that I often talk about is the fact that it is critically important to define terminology, to understand what we mean, and to mean what we say by what we by what we say. Here's the here's the bottom line with regard to this issue: if if they agreed, if they truly believed uh, what they are saying, that we reject any theory or worldview, uh, it, it, it would there would be it would be no it would be no problem to see as a friendly amendment the addition of the words to include critical race theory right because it what what it would do is it would it would address critical race theory and any other uh worldview or theory that rose up against the knowledge of of, of Christ with regard to the issue of human identity uh, ethnicity uh and any other group dynamic it, it, which is what's stated in the in in the resolution to sit to see the addition of those three words as problematic and even unfriendly really in my estimation exposes their desire to be vague this is this terminology is terminology that that most of those who are advocating for what i call crt light are doing uh, and what I mean by CRT light is that, that people want to say, well, there's a version of this that we can appreciate. There's a, there's there's aspects of the of these ideas that are beneficial that we can still use. And and to that, I, I'd say a broken clock gets the time right twice a day, right? But we don't put that broken clock up on the wall with the hope that it hangs around and helps us in some way, shape, or form. We throw the clock away and we get one that actually works. And we've got that clock that works. We've got the word of God. We've got we've got that which ordered time to begin with. And so we don't have to utilize these these theories and worldviews that are antithetical to the Christian worldview. But but again, the reason to, to the to, before I start preaching, the direct response to your to your question is the ambiguity allows folks who advocate for CRT, but who also advocate for this lightened version of it to embrace what's written in resolution two while still holding on and clinging to aspects of CRT that they believe are helpful for their purposes. Yeah, I think that's a great point. But, you, you know, when you think about the fact that in 2019, which was just the last actual convention that we were able to hold because we didn't have one in 2020, mm -hmm. the very last convention one of the very last orders of business that we engaged in uh, late on a Wednesday afternoon before the closing of the convention was Resolution 9. And we actually adopted Resolution 9 to, to use critical race theory and intersectionality as quote-unquote analytical tools. So in essence, this convention has approved CRTI already to be used as analytical tools. So now you come to this convention in Resolution 2 on the sufficiency of Scripture, and you have them using ambiguous language suggesting that any worldview, or excuse me, any theory or worldview, end quote, that finds the 
ultimate identity of human beings in ethnicity or any other group dynamic, that language uh, is intentionally ambiguous because what it does is it does this. It says that the scriptures are sufficient and that um, we are condemning any theory or any worldview other than critical race theory and intersectionality. And the reason I say that is because we already have approved critical right. race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools. Yeah. So now what we're saying is any theory or worldview, but yes. not by not naming critical race theory and intersectionality, by striking this man's amendment, what we're doing is we're saying any theory or worldview other than critical race theory and, inter and intersectionality. In other words, we have already adopted Resolution 9, and this ambiguity does nothing but serve to strengthen Resolution 9 when we refuse, continuously refuse, to actually go on record as naming critical race theory and intersectionality as godless ideologies. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that it does, Josh, in addition, is, 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 is the, the practicality that what happens is pastors who do not have the time to study all of these aspects and worldviews are trusting leadership. They're saying, okay, the critical race theory, yeah, I, I, I hear it's bad, but the SBC, are, are, you know, the convention has said that it can be used as analytical tools. And there are things that are beneficial. So I can, I can utilize the aspects of critical race theory that I feel are, are congruent with my worldview that is biblical. So right alongside the Bible, I keep open books from Kendi. Uh, I keep open, you know, books from other, other thought leaders in that area, Kimberly Crenshaw and others. I can keep those books open right alongside my Bible. I'm going to lean onto my Bible because I know that that's sufficient. But I mean, in addition to my Bible, I mean, it's, it's a total contradiction. If the Bible's sufficient, I don't need these other things. Yeah, but in addition to my Bible, I'm going to, because the because I know that my leaders have, have said these, there's some things that are of value, I can keep these other books open and examine my worldview through now this muddied lens that has now been provided by the, uh, by the resolutions put forth by the SBC. Yeah. The convention is starving. I mean, you had a man come to the microphone at one point begging, basically, that money be used by the SBC to fund literature that would teach us the truth of critical race theory and intersectionality. I think that you have a lot of people in the room that were tired, quite frankly, of hearing about critical race theory and intersectionality, but that that serves to, to strengthen the point that there's a massive concern about this, and we should rightly be concerned about this issue because of the fact that it's dividing the convention, it's dividing churches, it's dividing friends. And it's, it's, it's really, in many ways, um, corrupting churches because it's being promoted at some level, and then it's flowing right into the pulpits and then right into the churches of, of Southern Baptist and other denominations as well. And so this is a problem that needs to be addressed, and this was a massive concern early on Tuesday. Now this was this was an issue, and, and how it got continued to be raised, unfortunately— was that the pushback from the podium was, you know, the, the, things like this would be said, quote, if some people in this room were as passionate about the gospel as they are about critical race theory, we would win the world to Christ, end quote. And now that that that, that was applauded, like people were thinking, oh, that, and again, I think most of the folks who were there 
pushing forward the, the CRT ideology, the CRT agenda, or at least embraced it to some level. The, the lighter version of it is useful as a, as a useful as an analytical tool. They, and, and, and again, they were probably that and tired of, of hearing about it. The thought is that this is the way to go. We, we, wanna, we don't want to talk about critical race theory because we've got the gospel to present. Well, the issue, it's a false dichotomy is what's being set up. The, the idea that that in, in, that those who are concerned about the muddying of the gospel through critical race theory have to ignore that muddying for the purpose of advancing a flawed gospel is foolish. Uh, Paul would spend the vast majority of his time dealing with and addressing in his writings, dealing with false teaching, dealing with false I- ideologies that, re- that, that would rise against the knowledge of Christ, said that that's our role is to put those things down. And so for us to, to for, for SBC leadership to challenge those who are bringing this to the issue is very similar to, to a, a Judaizer back in the day dealing with the issue, pushing forward the issue of circumcision and then turning back around and saying, I, Paul, I don't, I don't know why you and the, the other apostles are, are worried about this circumcision issue. If you would worry about preaching your gospel and not about us promoting this, this circumcision issue, you'd win more people to Christ. I mean, that, that, that's foolish, right? We've got to deal with these issues and be clear about where we stand. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, Virgil. I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, place the the preaching of the gospel and the defending of the gospel against one another. In other words, they're not mutually exclusive. So in other words, to preach the gospel and to defend the gospel are not somehow uh, separate uh, conflicting actions. In fact, to be a faithful pastor, the Bible teaches us that we must be able to shut the mouths of those who actually teach things that are contrary to the gospel. And so you have to defend the faith. Absolutely. You actually have to name heresies. Mm-hmm. And at times, as Paul did in the scriptures, you have to name names of individuals who are promoting these things. And so mm-hmm. if we can't have men mm-hmm. who that, you know we can trust in leadership positions within the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, who would have the backbone to actually state that these things are godless ideologies on every level without any qualification whatsoever, then you're going to continuously see a stream of people who are exiting the Southern Baptist Convention. And what it would be, it would serve the Southern Baptist Convention leadership well. In fact, it would serve the SBC well uh, to remember that local churches can serve God and function as God has called them to serve apart from the Southern Baptist Convention. But the Southern Baptist Convention cannot function for one day without the local churches. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a powerful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we need, we need humble leaders who would recognize it doesn't matter how many years they've been serving in various capacities within the SBC. You should not stand on a platform and talk down to concerned messengers who actually serve in many ways to pay your salary. Uh, We need to be humble and we need to take seriously anything that's a threat or or or, or, that attacks at any level the local church. And so we need to take seriously these issues related to uh, CRT and intersectionality. Now, these are massive concerns, but then it it goes on. We we have other concerns related to other issues like the issue of abortion. So when we go on to the, you know, the additional uh, hours of business and uh, considering issues related to other resolutions, Resolution 3 
was an issue that uh, was put before the convention for consideration. And resolution three was titled on taxpayer complicity in abortion and the Hyde Amendment. Now, there's some problematic language in this resolution that needed to be dealt with. And the last resolved stated the following, quote, that Southern Baptists should work through all available cultural and legislative means to end the moral scourge of abortion as we also seek to love, care for, and minister to women who are, get this, victimized by the unjust abortion industry, end quote. Now, a messenger came to the mic to offer an amendment that alters the language for clarity and to strengthen the argument but yet it removed the language of victimization of women. And yet that amendment was rejected as a friendly amendment. Now, the question would be this, why? Why would we reject that as a friendly amendment? And at that moment, you had a lot of emotion. You had a woman that was a part of the resolutions committee, and she's the one that's there at the microphone, and she starts to to cry a bit with tears. She she speaks directly to this messenger and says, before she had spent time counseling these women, she also held to those similar positions. And again, you have to ask the question, why? And so we start to see this this issue of incrementalism, this this issue of uh, the pro-life industry and the pro-life movement. And we saw that later on with uh, another debate that came from the floor related to the abolition resolution. But again, you have this idea here, this language that women are the ones who are victimized by this unjust abortion industry. Now, what problem do you do you hear when you hear that type of language, Virgil? Oh, for the first piece of the problem is that what we're leaning into in order to determine someone's victimized status, one the, the language again begins in, to, in from the beginning starts with with what sounds intersectional, right? Uh, whether or not a person is a victim. Now, now that they're a victim, they have the moral high ground with regard to the statements that they're about to make concerning truth. So, with the moral high ground based upon their victimhood status, uh, especially this particular woman. Uh, who was up speaking added to that that the the aspect of of her um, of her the the intersectionality that that she was representing added to that sentimentalism. Uh, she added to the idea now now we're going to appeal to sentimentality by by being emotional about the issue. Thirdly, we're going to then appeal to my own experience informs me. So all of these things are apart from really validating whether or not these women are victims on the basis of what scripture says and the culpability that they have as they are making a decision to end the life of a child in their womb. Uh, we've absolved them by, by one resolution. We've absolved them of sin, of, of any culpability, of, of any accountability for their actions. And, and what we've said is that there's an industry out there, there's a machine out there that is forcing women or men out there who are forcing women into these abortion clinics. And as someone who's been, and I know you've been on the sidelines of uh, out in front of abortion clinics, as, as have I, and, and very, it is very few of those women who are actually brought there by some man, you know, dragging them in against their will 
into an abortion mill. I, in fact, I, I don't think in the seven years, if we're going to appeal to experience, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say the last seven years that, that I've ever been there, I, I can't, I cannot tell you that there's been one woman who was dragged into one of these places as a result of some boyfriend uh, or someone that, that, uh, that claimed to love them at some point. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the majority of the time when you're standing there watching vehicles come into the parking lot, uh, you, you see SUVs, you see, you know, very expensive automobiles flowing into these parking lots. Mm-hmm. Um, these women are not, by and large, victims of an abortion industry. They're making willful choices. Yes, informed choices, by the way. Sometimes passionate, um, you know, uh, debate happens in private with, you know, regard to the people that they're close to that are influencing them to make decisions. But nevertheless, they're making decisions and they're brought there uh, by people who could help Mm -hmm. them save the life of that child. But instead, the the language of this resolution puts Mm -hmm. the the victim category places it on the the women instead of on the actual baby that's being murdered. And so this is problematic. And this is the problem as it pertains to the issues of incrementalism. We have um, passionate debate that erupted on the floor as it pertained to the the resolution on abolition. But as you think about it, um, for a long time, I've been, you know, in, in years past, I was very sympathetic to incrementalism. You know, if we can just take one step in the right direction, then that's, you know, a, a step, you know, further down the road for us to go and that sort of thing. But the right. fact of the matter is simply this, this type of, this type of language that, that continues to perpetuate just one step forward and two steps back is not helpful. And we don't need to continuously place this idea of victimization on women. We need to put uh, and speak clearly with regard to the life of unborn children. They're being sacrificed on the altar of convenience, convenience and self-promotion. And I need to you know, continue to work and I need to finish my education and so on and so forth. And the fact is, these babies are dying. They're being murdered. And we need to speak, and if anyone should be clear about that, it should be the quote-unquote largest Protestant denomination on planet Earth, the Southern Baptist Convention. And yet, they swung and missed again. And so, given an opportunity to speak clearly, they they missed. And so, this was problematic for me. Um, I left there very discouraged when I heard that debate. And I, I think that we need to be clear that we stand for and advocate for the life of unborn children. And we need to be clear about that. Yeah. When you see uh, unfriendly amendments uh, or amendments put forward called unfriendly that call for the abolition of abortion, we have got to pause and go, what in the world are we doing? Yeah. What, what, what in the world is going on? And, and if it, like you, I, 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 there was a point in time when I would advocate for incrementalism, but, but I'm seeing that as, as, a, as an idol that really needs to be brought down. It is, it is actually a golden calf to watch those claiming to be pro-life stand against an amendment that says that all that all that the resolution says is that they put forward a, a resolution for the the abolition of abortion. All that their resolution says is that we stand against right. We we stand against uh, abortion. Uh, we're we're for the the full abolishing of abortion, and uh, rather than these incremental steps, 
And then again, to the point that you made with regard to this aspect of the resolution, which is simply to say that women are women are victims. It, 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 what it does is it causes us to to walk. It, it, we're capitulating to cultural language. Uh, we're, we're capitulating to and, and are inconsistent on what we believe life to be. Do we really believe that that which is in the womb conceived uh, between a man and a woman uh, is a human life? A, a, a sperm and embryo is a, is a human life. Sperm and egg is a human life or not. And if we believe it's a human life, then we need to operate on that basis and be consistent in our language. And a, and a woman has a responsibility uh, as a result of life being created in her womb to protect that life um, and, and to call her a victim when she willfully walks into one of these abortion mills, uh, I think damages, damages her, uh, her spiritually, uh, emotionally and otherwise. Uh, and 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 really serves no good purpose whatsoever. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that we as a local church can, and as local churches collectively, can minister to women who have gone through and 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 had you know abortions in the past, paid for mm-hmm. their children to be murdered. We can actually minister to them. We can share the gospel with them. We can show them the love of Christ. We can explain to them the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus. We can minister to broken hearts. We can do this. This is what God has called us to do, right? But to support language that continuously says, no, you're a victim, that's not helpful. That's not helpful. We need to be clear. And then again, to your point on the resolution on abolition, you know, when you have that being brought out of committee, because initially they 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 were going to just sideline that altogether, and Bill Askell actually brings it to the the, the yeah. front of the you know the the floor for conversation and for debate, and we uh, overwhelmingly voted to bring it out of committee for consideration. Now on Wednesday, when the debate happens re- regarding that resolution, you had passionate debate from individuals like a, a specific man who is actually the chair of Christian ethics of the ERLC came to the mic and spoke directly against the resolution. And he was passionately giving a case that we are pro, a pro-life convention. And that if we pass this resolution, we're going to undo everything that we've done in the past. And so again, uh, it was it was it was problematic. So then there was an amendment that was offered up by a messenger to soften the language on abolition, which he included just one word alone, so that we're not going to uh, engage in incrementalism alone uh, as a means of of standing against abortion. So in other words, what this does is it actually opens up the opportunity for you to use incrementalism and an abolitionist methodology to stand against abortion. And so it softened the language. And and yet, once again, I think that this is a swing and miss for the Southern Baptist Convention. It, it, isn't it interesting that we're willing to soften the language on abolition with, with, with clarity? I mean, and, and, and at the same time, when it comes to being direct with the language on critical race theory, we, we won't insert any words that that point to critical race theory. So we're going to be soft on abortion. We're going to be we're going to be soft on critical race theory. And and I mean, is that really the direction that the Southern Baptist Convention wants to go? I mean, why can't we draw clear 
lines in the sand and be very distinct and clear. I think about that that's the point. I think that this issues. convention served to draw a clear line in the sand to show exactly where the Southern Baptist Convention stands. Yeah, it stands as soft on I, I abortion agree. Agree. in many ways. Uh, it stands as soft on complementarianism. It stands as confused theologically when we elect a president who has something other than Trinitarian language on his doctrinal statement, um, all in support of of one candidate who would you know better serve us, end quote. Well, what does that mean by better serve us? Well, what it means is, is it means that he's going to be more friendly to our cause than Mike Stone is. And so regardless of what he says about the Trinity, regardless of whether he co-preaches with his wife, regardless of, you know, all these other issues, um, he's going to stand with us on our agendas. And so Mike Stone is not. So let's, let's vote for him. And so again, this falls into what we would classify as pragmatism. If it works, do it. It doesn't matter what the man believes. If he's going to help us Absolutely. get down the road another year and continue our agenda, elect him. Yeah. To the point that you made about pragmatism, we constantly heard from the platform, uh, the, the, the whole world is watching. I mean, they they kept using that language, and and while I have no uh, no problem with our Christian witness, our primary concern and standard has nothing to do with a watching world. It has everything to do with a God who sees, and and we have to be that that has to be our standard. All of the problems that we see are the result of the fact that we're concerned that the world is watching. And we've kowtowed and capitulated and bowed the knee and softened stances and ignored language as it pertains to issues that really matter in an effort to, to, to have a big tent, to have large numbers and to, and, and to look like something to the world that, that really, in my estimation, walks further and further away from what Scripture actually dictates we need to be looking like. Amen, brother. And when Daryl listens to this podcast, he's going to be looking for the organ button at that point for you and asking <laughs> asking for you to say that again. But here's the point. You're, you're spot on. We have to remember that it doesn't matter if the watching world is looking at us. It doesn't matter if the New York Times is in the room. It doesn't matter if Christianity Today is sitting there taking notes. It doesn't matter what the cultural opinion might be. What matters most is that God is watching. God is watching how we raise our ballots. God is watching how we and who we elect as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so these are critical moments, critical issues, and critical decisions. And quite frankly, the Southern Baptist Convention missed it and missed it big. And we need to speak out. We need to stand firm and to be honest about these issues. And again, this is not you know a, a mean-spirited sort of statement against people that might be good individuals and have done you know good things and that and that sort of thing. But we must be clear when it comes to truth. We must be clear when it comes to the gospel. We must be clear when it comes to the Trinity. We must be clear when it comes to complementarianism. And again, you know, complementarianism that language in and of itself is confusing. That term in and of itself is is a little bit awkward and confusing, but. If we truly believe and hold to that definition of complementarianism, then we need to be clear when we elect individuals to lead us. 
it's going to have it's going to have an impact. It's going to leave an indelible mark. Leaders like Ed Litton will leave an indelible mark on this convention. And so now the question becomes this. On these issues that we've discussed, undoubtedly many others are going home. Mm -hmm. They're preparing emails to their churches. They're going to give a report to the church related to what happened at the convention. And we've had individuals talk to both you and I and ask questions like, what's next? What does that mean? You know, should we leave the Southern Baptist Convention? I did a poll on Twitter, and I know that that's not exactly the most accurate sort of thing and that there's going to be room for um, error in, in such a poll. But I was interested in just finding out, you know, what people are thinking as they left the convention this year. You know, were they thinking that this election of Ed Litton was problematic enough that they should actually leave the Southern Baptist Convention? And so I asked this question. Do you believe that the election of Ed Litton as SBC president, among other decisions, is indicative of a leftward theological move that will necessitate your church's departure from the Southern Baptist Convention? Now, I, I gave the three options. Option one was yes. Option two was it's a serious consideration. And option three was no. Now, here were the results after 24 hours. 36.8% of 881 votes said yes. 23.7% of 881 votes stated it's a serious consideration, and only 39.5% of 881 votes said no, that they would remain in the SBC without, without further consideration. So that tells me that you have a large number. In fact, you have some 60% of 881 votes stating that it's, it's serious enough to consider it, and many of those stating we're definitely leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, as we think about that, what's next for local churches? Is, th is this an issue worth dividing over? Is this an issue that's sort of the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak? Where do we go from here? So I think, I think undoubtedly that some are going to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. All right. That's just going to happen. I think that others are going to, you know, stay in and, 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 you know, try to work with other like-minded churches and organizations within the SBC for the long fight. Now, let's just be, let's just be honest about that. What does the long fight look like? Now, we need to be mindful, those of you that have studied the Southern Baptist Convention and studied the conservative resurgence, that long fight strategy is going to take, you know, a very strategic effort to elect a conservative president who's actually going to deal with these issues, who's actually going to appoint individuals in various different places within various different committees who will eventually shape trustees at, at you know, entity levels. Uh, related to seminaries who will eventually uh, uh, inform or uh, shape those who are actually teaching in those entities. And so this is, this is not a short goal here. This is like a 10 to 15 year plan once you actually get someone elected. And so you have to, you have to first, you have to get someone elected and then you have to get them elected twice. And then you have to replace them on the third year with another conservative candidate who's elected twice. And so this is, you know, a, a decade to get started and 15 years to actually see massive results. And so the question becomes, are you willing to do that? Do you see this as, as worthy of your time and energy, your resources, 
And so that's, that's something to consider. Um, so it's definitely an uphill and upstream sort of fight. Okay. And you're going to be called all sorts of names. I mean, just, just to be clear, I mean, just me putting out simple things to think about during this convention on Twitter, I'm called immediately called a Christian nationalist. I'm called a racist, called an ultra conservative in the New York Times, called a fundamentalist, all these titles, just because I'm unwilling to support these things that are problematic. So, you know, you just have to think about these things. And so when you're debating, should we stay or should we go? I try to think about all of that. And again, I'm greatly indebted to the SBC, but then we also have to think about it from another level. And and it's a level that goes like this. Can you in good conscience continue to put money into the Southern Baptist Convention that's going to actually be used to plant churches that you would not actually become a member of and have elders in those churches that would not be welcome to be elders in your church, is that something that you see as a violation of your conscience? And then on the theological education level, are you going to continue to give money to a convention that hires faculty to train people for the ministry? Are you going to continue to support those theological institutions or when someone comes to you in the life of your church and says, I'm feeling and sensing a call to gospel ministry, what seminary should I go to? Are you going to send them to the master's seminary in California, or are you going to send them to one of the Southern Baptist conventions seminaries? And so when it comes to those questions, we have to be honest. Are, you know, are we supporting a broken system by giving money to a broken system that we don't really truly support, and it's a true violation of our conscience. And so I think that we need to be honestly evaluating those issues and thinking about those issues and, you know, then make a really careful decision as you move forward. Yeah, I think, I think, a, lot of, I think a lot of pastors have left the convention and are, and are going home to make those kinds of decisions, and they're not easy decisions. Um, there, there's there's some benefits to being a part of a of a large organization like the SBC and having programs that help and 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 products that provide support. But again, you have to begin asking the questions. If, if I'm going to be getting curriculum from from a Lifeway or from some source of from an SBC source that has you know CRT written through it, and no one's going to call it as problematic, I've got to think about that. Uh, I've got to think about the, the 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 next time we have a search committee and we're looking for people to come from a particular seminary. Has that has that young man been trained and steeped um, in, in critical race theory or or in liberation theology or what 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 has actually been their primary means of of, of understanding things hermeneutically and otherwise? And so you've got to be you really have to examine those kinds of things. And, and I, I know and recognize that people are going to be looking for alternative sources and resources uh, to be to, to, to help their 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 local churches. At the end of the day, a local church pastor who really loves being a pastor does not want to have to deal with all of the issues at a huge entity like the SBC when all of these issues are, are they actually want to pastor their church. They they put leaders in place that they hoped and trusted would would continue to steer them in a direction that was aimed at orthodoxy. And and now you know as they've done that they look back only to find that 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 it's capitulated that the organization that they trusted has has really walked away from some really solid biblical truths 
on key issues that really matter at the day-to-day level of, of their parishioners. And so it's, some, it's something to think about. It's something to evaluate. It's something that I know that, that, that you know, I'm thinking through. I know that others will be as well. Um, and, and we've got it. We've got to think about that as I have people reach out to me, asking me questions all the time. I got to think about the right kinds of answers, thoughtful answers, wise answers to provide them and point them in directions that really are going to be helpful. So, Yeah. And as you say that, and as you articulate those very issues, it, it makes me even more happy and pleased with the direction of G3 Ministries and where we're headed to provide Christian resources to local churches that will help shape them and encourage them in their journey of faith. And, you know, again, we're going to be rolling out some of these very important things as we get a little bit closer to the national conference this fall. And we're going to be holding some very important meetings at that conference for pastors. And, and again, if you're not registered for the upcoming G3 conference, we would point you to our website, g3men.org. You can go ahead and get registered. You can look forward to joining us. It'll be a, a wonderful and very rich, theologically rich conference on the doctrine of Christ. It'll be a great encouragement to you. But again, we're going to be having some very important conversations on the peripheral. We're going to be holding some uh, lunch meetings and some things that you're going to want to engage in as it pertains to our uh, church uh, network and pastoral network and some other opportunities for you to engage in there. So we look forward to that. We're also going to be releasing some resources at the conference, uh, resources that will be uh, vastly encouraging to you and your local church. And so wonderful things on the horizon. And so we want to see you with us this upcoming fall. Virgil, any last words as we get ready to close the books on this edition of the G3 podcast? No, just excited for the days to come. Uh, I, I think with all of the with all of what's happening in the you know the transition and, and the changes that are happening in the SBC, I do think uh, difficult times, difficult situations do provide rich opportunities. And uh, I think that folks who are who are contemplating these issues need to be on the lookout for those kinds of opportunities that that'll be a benefit to them, to their church body, to them personally and spiritually and otherwise. And so, cannot wait for this year's G3, man. It is going to be amazing. And folks, are this is one you won't want to miss. I look forward to seeing everybody get there. Absolutely. So once again, we point you to our website, g3men.org. You can find the archives of this very podcast there, as well as information about the upcoming conference. And you can find not only registration information, but lodging information as well. We look forward to seeing you this fall at the G3 National Conference. Remember, we are now a biennial national conference, so we will have our national conference 2021 and then again in 2023 and 2025. That's the the sort of rotation now. In the off year, we will be having some smaller events, more regional events that you can engage in. More information coming about that as well very soon. But until next time, may God bless you. We look forward to seeing you next time on the G3 Podcast. May God bless.